This month on Security Management Highlights. We're making these traps that schools are, are getting sucked into. It's just not, it's not good for anybody. I don't think it's the school's fault per se. I just think it's the environment we've created, relying too much on legislation, relying too much on technology. The more we take people out of the problem, the worse the problems are gonna get. One year after the Parkland shooting, Jason Destein, owner of Securable Alternatives and chair of the ASIS International School Safety and Security Council, speaks with me about school security and his observe, navigate, escape alternative to run, hide, fight. Plus, for many, many years, cameras were viewed as more of a forensic tool, but now cameras based on this technology can be a real integral part of the proactive uh, nature of the overall security program. Does your security plan use event-based or patrol-based video monitoring? And what's the right choice? To find out, I'm gonna ask Eddie Sorrells, CPP, the Chief Operating Officer and General Counsel for DSI Security Services. All that and more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Eddie, welcome to the show. How nice to see you again. Thanks so much, Chuck. I appreciate the invitation. Tell us about <laughs> uh, the evolution of camera technology. Man, we are so far advanced in the last 10 years. It's unbelievable. We really are, Chuck. And obviously, cameras have been at the uh, forefront of the security industry for quite some time. But just in the past 10 or 15 years, the technology has advanced to a point where they are really an integral part of the overall security program. And nowadays, cameras can do things that we only dreamed of years before. But uh, 10 to 15 years ago, most all camera systems were analog. Uh, they sent transmissions back to recorders via coax cable or some other mechanism. But a modern camera technology allows us to view images virtually anywhere in the world. So uh, one of the benefits of the overall security program is using camera monitoring um, as part of your program and being able to see real time what's going on at any type facility anywhere in the world. I used to recommend cameras at the bottom of the list. I'd say, listen, I don't need a picture of somebody stealing my laptop. I know it's missing. And the way you spec that camera, I can't even see the guy's face. It's not even useful for legal reasons, right? I'm a big proponent now. When that camera goes off and there's somebody on the front porch I don't want to talk to, I don't talk to them. I think cameras now need to be at the forefront of your security plan. What do you think about that? I think you're absolutely correct. And you just hit on one of the key issues that we're seeing in the overall security industry using cameras as a proactive tool. As you pointed out, for many, many years, cameras were viewed as more of a forensic tool being able to see what happened yesterday or last week, or in some cases months before, uh, to try to get a, a picture of that person that was committing a crime or to try to recreate what happened at a facility. But now cameras based on this technology can be a real integral part of the proactive uh, nature of the overall security program. Uh, you mentioned the, the application in residential. Uh, there are many do-it-yourself type camera systems you could buy at your local uh, big box store that have the capability of really knowing what's going on at your property and then using voice down technology to talk to someone that may be on your property and ascertaining why they're there. So I think you're right. Cameras have come to the forefront of actually being a proactive tool, not just a forensic tool to use after something has happened. So let's talk about the basics of monitoring. We have event-based versus patrol-based. Explain those two for us. Sure. If you're looking at employing a camera monitoring strategy at a facility, let's just say a, a industrial facility, uh, there are really two basic types. Uh, Event-based really uh, talks about being able to know what's going on in real time. For example, if you've got a distribution center and you've got a perimeter set up, 
uh, and you want to make sure that you're aware when someone breaches that perimeter. Maybe you're having issues with somebody stealing product or trespassing, vandalism. It could be any number of security incidents. Uh, Event-based camera monitoring would give you an alert, an alarm, if you will, when someone goes into that area. So a, a video monitoring agent uh, would be sitting, in some cases, thousands of miles away, and they would not be staring at that camera uh, 24 seven, they would actually get an alarm or an alert when someone goes into that area. Uh, so they would be able to bring up the camera at that point and follow a predetermined protocol. It may be a voice down telling someone to leave the area. It may be calling a security officer that's on the property or notifying someone there at the facility. So that would be an event-based uh, camera monitoring strategy. A patrol base would be sort of as the title implies, really doing predetermined patrol scans using camera technology. For example, a traditional security officer may go into a parking area and do a hourly round either on, on foot or with a vehicle. A camera monitoring agent can do the same thing. Um, that, that agent could scan the parking area looking for any suspicious activity, uh, maybe someone loitering, maybe someone attempting to break into a car. Uh, they could even look and see if lights are not working properly. Uh, so really a patrol based, uh, not something that alerts them, but a predetermined scan just to look for suspicious activity, just like a, a security officer would. Now, there's all this uh, technology that can determine if it's a red car, if it's a Toyota, if it's a human, if it's a bird sitting on top of my camera, which happens every week out here in the desert, by the way. Yeah, I can imagine. Are we are we close enough that we can rely on that as, as being accurate? It is pretty accurate. See, I'm, I'm still for the human touch. I think we need a human to f do the final once over on those things and say, you know what? I'm going to confirm that. But some would tell you that the technology is here to say, hey, we got this. We don't need people to monitor these things. Yeah, and I would say that I'm certainly in the school of having that human interaction. I believe camera monitoring is one aspect of your overall security program. Uh, once you notice something, you still have to have that human response. You still have to have a, a protocol that involves security officers on the ground in many, many respects. But the technology has come such a long way that it can distinguish between uh, things such as animals on fence lines. That's one of the questions I've gotten quite a bit over the years. Well, how are we going to know if that's a bird or actually someone trying to breach the fence perimeter? And the analytics in the camera technology world have gotten so sophisticated that they can distinguish between those two elements. But uh, as you pointed out, you still have to have that human element to, to visually respond to uh, really uh, to verify that, that what is being uh, projected over the camera image is really what's happening. Is it that animal? Is it someone trying to breach a perimeter? So I think this is an overall part of the comprehensive plan that involves the boots on the ground, so to speak, of having the security officer or someone there verifying it as well. Let's talk about some common mistakes uh, involved in specking a camera system, setting up, installing, and, and operating. I mean, still in this day and age, you think they would not put a camera up in the far corner of your 12-foot ceiling that shows a teeny little pinhead image that's no good in court, but I, but it still happens, apparently. Talk about some of those mistakes. Yeah, and you raised a very good point. Just having the right camera technology, the right resolution, um, making sure you have a proper image later on. Um, I, I saw something posted on a social media platform here 
a couple of months ago talking about how clear the images are we get back from space. But then again, when something happens at a hospital or industrial facility, it looks like the image is not even clear enough to ascertain whether or not it's a human being or not. <laughs> uh, so so that, that's just one example. So having a, a camera that's really going to give you a good image when it comes to remote video monitoring, that is essential because if you can't identify what you're looking at, uh, the program's going to fail. But uh, s some of the common mistakes just beyond choosing that that proper system are sometimes more elementary. Uh, one of the things that, that I've experienced many times before is having customers or, or people that are trying to implement camera monitoring into their overall strategy and really employing a security officer or a receptionist that are just staring at the camera all day long. And they will label that as camera monitoring. That certainly has a lot of inherent problems. There's been studies that have shown that uh, within a, a number of minutes, that person loses all sense of focus and they're not even really sure what they're looking at. So if the strategy is I'm going to have a bank of cameras and I'm going to have one or two or three security officers watching them continually just to see if something is occurring, often that's going to fail. That, that, that's, that's not a total failure if you have that as a strategy, but if you're really trying to detect suspicious activity, if you're trying to make sure you're uncovering things that are happening, wh where all those cameras are pointed, it's very hard for a human who's staring at those cameras 24-7 to really come up with any kind of verifiable intelligence in the long run. Would you say cameras are moving towards the preventative checklist. They're not quite there, but are we getting closer? I think we're getting much, much closer. You know, for years, we have looked at cameras as a deterrent. As our society is more and more comfortable, so to speak, with cameras, I believe it's getting less of a deterrent. But uh, many years ago, uh, many people thought if I put up a camera and maybe even a sign that said you're under video surveillance, that's going to have a lot of deterrent capability. I think that's less true today than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, but as far as being proactive, I think there are a lot of examples and illustrations in the security industry where people are using camera monitoring in a way that actually catches things uh, while they're happening or before they happen and not just using them as a forensic tool. Or as the next post on Instagram, Mr. Eddie Sorrells, CPP, PSP, PCI. DSI Security Services, the Chief Operating Officer. My friend, very good to talk to you. A wealth of knowledge. Always glad to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights. Thanks for your time, Joe. Hey, Jason. Welcome to the show. Good to see you again, my friend. How are you? I'm doing great. It's great to see you as well. Tell me about the growing legislation in the areas of school security. Yeah, uh, I think after all of the um, recent violence we've seen the last four, five, six, ten years, um, Legislation is increasing across the country. There's probably six to 700 different pieces of legislation out there, uh, local, state, federal um, levels of legislation. Everyone's trying to think, find a way to make schools safer, which is great, but I don't know if, if legislating our way to safer schools is the right path. I think it sounds, sounds good. I think a lot of people are buying into it, but the truth of the matter is more legislation isn't going to make schools safer. So I think when we do these after action reports, like we saw from Parkland and Columbine and, and other schools, you know, the, the real challenge is to how do we, as people come up with real solutions and not rely on legislation to say, hey, the school is a gun-free school, but yet we still see gun violence on the campus. There's a disconnect somewhere in there. 
And I think I think what I'm seeing is the more we rely on technology and the more that we rely on legislation, the further away from the solutions we're going to get. And I think we need to, to step back a second and say, we need to rethink this process because legislating our way to safer schools isn't working. Spending our way to safer schools isn't working either. We're spending you know, $3 billion a year in school security technology, and yet we're still seeing the acts of violence occur. So, so something's, something's not right there. And, and we need to step back, I think, as people and say, what are we doing and how can we do this differently? Talk to us some of the things written in this, this report. Uh, well, there's a couple of reports that came out. I think the one report is the um, the final report from the Federal Commission on School Security, which came out from Department of Homeland Security and the White House. And there was a lot of great um, initiatives in there, a lot of great efforts in there, a lot of new grants coming out for schools to look at and, and try to find things that are going to work to their advantage. Um, not so much one-size-fit-all approaches, but more customized approaches, which is great. A lot of the word, the word prevention is used in the final report from the Federal Commission a lot, which is great. We need to put a lot of effort into true prevention, not just saying we're preventing um, these acts of violence from occurring. So um, that was a great report. The one downside, I think it was almost 200 pages long. And for a school administrator or someone tasked with school security in the schools to go through that in detail, it's going to take some time. So there's a lot of things that might apply, it might not apply. I don't know if the readers are going to go through that line by line, try to find what's appropriate for them. So that was the first report that came out. And that was back in January, back in December. And then in January, um, the after action report from Parkland came out. And, you know, again, 400 plus pages, maybe longer and very detailed. They did a, a great job, I think, of outlining everything along the entire process of that shooting, how it unfolded, how it how it began years before um, with, with the shooter and all his, his troubles he went through in schools. And then it really detailed the after action reports of what they did afterwards and uh, you know the one thing that stuck out to me in that report was again a lot more legislation um, rather than the schools themselves taking a look at you know what can they do at the ground level to make that difference and not rely so much on legislation legislation is going to be a part of it no matter what we do we have to live with that that's okay but I think each individual school has to step back a little bit and say what what can we do differently here at our level with our people to get involved and to make that to make that that difference to truly make that safe and secure school. Knowing school's first mission is education, not security. In this day and age, security has to be a, a, a super high priority. And I think people know that. It's just a matter of how we do it from the personnel level, not the legislative and, and technical level sometimes. What I'm finding is there is so much state funding tied to school performance. And I, I, there's, I don't want to say it's a phenomenon, but there is an effort out there for underreporting. And I think schools are, you know, not ignoring the problem, but they're they're not reporting to the state level what's really happening sometimes. And I, I think that's it's contributing to the, you know, we got this approach, we can handle it, no need, nothing to see here, no need to help us out. To me, it's kind of dangerous. Um, I think schools do a great job of telling our kids it's okay to ask for help, it's okay to reach out, it's okay to put your hand up. Yet when you go to them to help them out. You know, you get the, hey, we're good here, nothing to see, move along, we don't need your help. Um, not every case. There's a lot of schools that, that seek help and want help, which is great. But there's also a lot of schools that, you know, you know, we got this, you know, we're, we're not, we're the experts, we'll take care of it. And there, there's an inherent danger in that, I think. And I, I think once we can get past that hurdle, we can start making some real progress. But, you know, it, 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 it's going to take some time, though. Is this a definition problem? You and I define threats and violence differently than possibly an administrator in a school. So to them, yeah. bullying is not an immediate threat. 
where you and I look to it uh, as a pathway to violence, and it's the first start of violence. Correct. Um, I don't know if it's a definition issue. Um, I think, you know, when I step back and I look at the problems that we have with bullying and fights and, and hate and assaults and weapons on campus, you, you name it, right? I, I think schools are aware of what those are. They may have their different lingos on the definition, but in the end, at the end of the day, I think everyone knows what that is. I think the problem really comes down to they have, they identify the problem and then they see the only solution is going to be, we got to put up cameras and we got to put in door locks. Maybe we'll get some visitor management, maybe we'll get some window film. And if we can do those things, then we should be perfectly fine. You know, when you step back and you look at, you know, 85 to 90 different threat vectors that may be out there, and the only thing you're doing is trying to say, we got cameras that will help us prevent these things from happening. And it's a false sense of security, but I think that there's a disconnect between the problem and the solution. And I, from my standpoint, what I try to help schools understand is there's this information gap that's out there. And if you don't, if you don't use the information that's currently in your schools so of what's happening all around the incidents and, and, and tracking those and trending those and, and trying to find out deeper what's really going on, you're going to continue to say, here's a problem, here's a solution, put the solution in place and let's hope for the best. If they would just step back and look at the data on bullying in their school, on weapons, on fights and hate and drugs and whatever it may be, any adverse event, and if they just tracked it a little bit better, then make more actionable, intelligence-driven decisions and say bullying is a problem or bullying is a problem at fourth and fifth or sixth grade levels or whatever level it may be and address the core of the issue versus saying, hey, district wide, we had 100 cases of bullying and yeah, we'll, we'll put some cameras up and we'll put some posters and we should be good to go. And I just don't see that as a real viable solution. It's just a quick fix. I see that when these things come up, administrators solve it administratively. Is that stuff still going on? It, it is. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, if they can handle it administratively, then they're less apt to have to report that incident. Again, that's kind of that inherent danger of, you know, oh, we, we'll just classify it as this and then we'll have to get reported. That's not every school, but there are some schools that are probably doing that. And, and that's a shame because they're, all, again, all of their funding is tied to what the state will give them and, and they're trapped. I don't blame the schools for doing it. I understand why, but we got to fix that that imbalance. We can't we can't tie state funding to oh you reported 100 cases of bullying. Guess what? No more money for you. That's that you can't punish schools that way. So I think that's where you get that legislation that it, we're making these traps that schools are, are are getting sucked into, and it's just not it's not good for anybody. So. I don't think it's the school's fault per se. I just think it's the environment we've created, relying too much on legislation, relying too much on technology. The more we take people out of the problem, the worse the problems are going to get. Because if the, if the root cause is people at the issue, and you know if that's where the issue is, then we can't take people out of the solution either. Does that make sense? Well, it is all about people in the long run. So all the gadgets in the right. world aren't going to work unless you have the people component observing behavior and the, the technology right. helps you mitigate that, so to speak. Now, this is a yeah. tough question, but it's just kind of a, a, a gut instinct of mine. How much do you think is involved in a lack of willingness to participate? In other words, there's a component here that says, yeah, that's not going to happen here. This is a nice school. Uh, it's an it's a affluent school, whatever the excuses are. Is this, is this still going on in 2019 where schools are just saying it's not going to happen here? 
and we don't need to worry about it because I see I still see that. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's still the case. I don't think it's as widespread though as it was four or five years ago. I think schools are are much more in tune with. I think their gut feeling is, yeah, you know what, it could happen here. Outwardly, they might be saying, you know, something different to keep people calm and relaxed. But I think inwardly, I think they're having more of that internal conversation with themselves to say, you know what, it's possible it could happen here. I talked to a school district in the Southwest, I'll say, um, a couple weeks ago, and very safe school. They have, they're doing great things. But internally, they were saying, you know what, we, we take this very seriously. We realize that this could happen anywhere at any point in time. So I think there's, I think that that paradigm is changing from no, 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 nothing to see here. It won't happen to us to we have a safe school. We feel confident with what we're doing, but behind closed doors, they, they, they take it very seriously. So I think you're getting two conversations, but I wouldn't conflate them to say that no one's paying attention to it. I think they're doing that. I think they're making that change internally um, and recognizing it a lot more than they were, you know, like I said, three, four or five years ago. Like I just created a program that's called Observe, Navigate, Escape. It was designed for the elementary school kids. The, the premise is all based on kids and their ability to use their senses to help them survive in an active shooter situation. So they can default back to what they hear, what they feel, what they see, what they smell, you know, and, and things like that. And and that's just, that's what the Department of Homeland Security had just embraced back in December to, to make it say, that's real, that I want. Guest has been Jason Destine of securablealternatives.com. Always a pleasure to have you on the show, Jason. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, I appreciate it. This month's certification profile is Rose Miller, CPP. Rose was a military police officer in the U.S. Army for 27 years before obtaining her CPP certification. She's a member of the ASIS International Military Liaison Council and serves as a Women in Security Liaison. Rose Miller, CPP, welcome to Security Management Highlights. How are you? I'm great, Chuck. Thanks so much for the invitation. I am super honored to be speaking to you. 27 years, military police officer. Very, very impressive. And thank you for your service. That was an honor every day. This is not an easy transition. Most people think, oh, I'm just going to walk out of law enforcement, walk out of military, and I'm just going to go get a security job. Doesn't quite work that way. Tell us how you first discovered ASIS International. Well, when I first uh, retired from the Army, I I took kind of the usual route working for a uh, consulting company that did Department of Defense work and quickly found out that I was bored doing that. I wasn't meaning didn't give me the excitement uh, level that I was seeking, nor was it really using my experience, my skills. So I decided to just launch a whole new career, looked at corporate security. In the midst of that job search, one of my Army colleagues, gentleman who used to work for me, talked to me about ASIS International. So I did some research and also in conjunction with that job search, I found so many of the job vacancy announcements were saying CPP required or preferred. Uh, so therefore, I quickly got the idea if I was going to get into corporate uh, security, get in the private sector, that that CPP was going to make or break it for me. You know, I have two master's degrees and obviously uh, 27 years of experience, but I did not feel like that was really telling the good the story about my qualifications and what I could contribute to a, a corporation, to a business. So the CPP, I felt like would be better to translate those skills and experience from that military experience and background to the private sector. Two masters, that's very impressive. Translate that into describing the process to our listeners. You know, how long did it take you to study? What was the subject matter material like? It's not quite as easy as everybody thinks it is. Certainly wasn't easy. So it took me six months of study. You know, I set a goal of when I was going to take the exam, and I set about one gaining, getting the reference materials from ASIS, along with the CPP study guide. I use a study guide as kind of a screening process for myself. What are the areas of the domains that I was weakest in? 
whether I didn't have the knowledge or experience and or the terminology was different to me. Many of the functions and, and things that we did in the military are the same in the private sector, except the principles are called different words, and different terminology. So I had to try to understand how to translate all that. So I use that CPP guide to figure out, okay, these are the areas, physical security is one domain, for example, that I really need to spend more time studying. And then when I got closer to taking the exam, I used that CPP study a guide again and took that practice test to see if I felt like I was ready to go. But it was six months. I wouldn't say the last 30 days is when I really start to spend three to four hours each day, Monday through Friday, studying and being prepared. What was the first job you, you landed uh, with your CPP? Well, within 90 days, I, I landed a job as a director of protective services, which is the same as director of security, at a large hospital in Washington, D.C., a 926-bed uh, level one adult trauma uh, hospital. That is quite a high-level job. That's amazing. Yeah, and, and again, 90 days after I got my CPP is when I was able to land that position. Because again, that job announcement said CPP preferred. Now, I understand you hung your own shiggle a few years ago, and you're doing security consulting in a private practice. How does your CPP help you there? Well, first of all, it establishes my credentials that are known to potential clients. They understand a CPP. They don't understand my Master of Strategic Studies from the U.S. Army War College, frankly. But they do understand the CPP, and most clients are looking for credentialed consultants. That's what makes a difference from every other consultant out there that you have these credentials. In addition, I use, of course, my connections, obviously through the network of other CPP uh, professionals to share lessons learned, best practices, references, resources, and ASIS education sessions and, and webinars, et cetera. And of course, obviously the Global Security Exchange I use those to keep up to date. Since I'm not in the field anymore, I'm not an operator anymore, I have to keep up to date and relevant of what is happening in the field in order to be most effective in helping my clients. We talked earlier about the transition between government jobs and private sector. What advice would you give military and law enforcement personnel who are transitioning uh, into these private sector uh, jobs? Uh, what advice would you give them to get into the security industry? Well, certainly you have to be able to take all of those job experience and you've got to be able to translate it. And you need help to do that. ASIS was great help for me to help translate. I did this job. What does that mean in the private sector? And how can I sell a potential employer that I really know how to do these kind of tasks and I have experience and success at doing these kind of tasks? So certainly, how do you translate what you did in the military to what you can do in the private sector? That takes some study and some time to translate that. And the other thing is, again, being relevant. So you understand what's happening in the private sector in security. Again, different than in the military, especially if you've been overseas for a lot of your time. That's a whole nother thing, a whole nother di different domain of security when you're overseas as opposed to being in the United States. Again, keeping yourself, make sure that they understand you are relevant and you understand what's going on in security today and that you're not and that you're also relevant in regulations and guidelines. Obviously, the military has you know tons and tons of guidelines and regulations, but so does the private sector. And so does other, you know, federal and state uh, law enforcement and security organizations. So we have to keep up to date on those. Again, convince a potential employer that you are, in fact, are knowledgeable outside of the military. Rose Miller, CPP, thank you for your service and thank you for coming on Security Management Highlights. Thanks for your time, Chuck.